You've survived the worst. Trauma, loss, rejection. The reality is, your pain can be a crutch, or it can be the thing that launches you. You're listening to the Purpose Through Pain podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you experience true freedom and breakthrough. Tune in each week as guests share their incredible life lessons from their personal stories and hear from experts who can give you the tools you need to stop surviving and start thriving. Here to help you find purpose through your pain is your host, Joseph James. Hey everyone and welcome to another great episode of Purpose Through Pain Podcast. I am your host, Joseph James, and I have a guest on here tonight, Gordon Corsetti, that has come from a lifehood of self-harm, mental illness, depression, anxiety, uh, multiple times of trying to take his own life, even affecting into his adult life, college life, adult life. But he has found a way to take himself from the mental illness and the stresses and the anxiety and how it affected his mindset to not only change his life now, but also help your children in schools, going around traveling to schools and talking to these young kids on how to deal with the stresses of life, how to deal with the anxieties of life. And so it does not lead into the same issues that he had dealing with mental health. Gordon, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you for that very energetic introduction <laughs> there, Joseph. I'm very excited to be here and thrilled to see where uh, where our conversation leads. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gordon, so you told me kind of backstage that you had multiple attempts of, of suicide, you know, growing up as a young person and, and then how these things affected you. Take me to the point that led you up to the very first attempt that you had, what your childhood was like and why you felt you were leading that direction, why your path in life was headed that way. Certainly. So I like to joke that I'm a, I'm a poster child for the pure genetics of, of mental illness, in my case, uh, major depressive disorder. And because my, my childhood was fantastic. Uh, my parents, um, wonderful parents, loving household, upper middle class, education was always a, a strong thing there, integration with the community, finding friends, supporting my interests. I had no wants. And, and even if looking back on it, I could think of a want. I, I didn't really need it. Like I, I was, I was provided for uh, by, by some truly loving parents and, and I'm grateful they're still with me today. And I went into high school right around 15 or 16, switched to a new high school that already is a little bit, you know, nerve inducing yeah. um, meeting new people and all that. Uh, but I started to notice more when I would wake up and then as I would go to sleep and then over the course of my entire day, these thoughts would become more pronounced. I'm worthless. No one cares about me uh, to a further extreme of I am actively causing the people around me pain. Uh, no matter what I do, nothing is good enough. It doesn't matter whether it's on the sports field or in the classroom or in my, my own work in kickboxing and jujitsu, which was my other passion at the time. Uh, nothing that I did, you know, I, I just kept shoveling these either activities or achievements or these objectives into this never ending abyss, this hole that just was not getting filled in any particular way. And I, not knowing that I had depression at the time, undiagnosed, made a, a, an assumption that turned out to be horrendously incorrect, which is the big reason why I do talks now. Uh, but I assumed that this was just a normal growth into adulthood. I thought every adult 
was dealing with, had dealt with all these thoughts and had clearly been successful in their lives and, and yeah. overcome these things. Uh, and even worse, I'm looking at all my peers and in my head, I'm going, they're thinking these same awful, self-destructive, miserable thoughts where they're, they're just the worst human being on the planet. And yet they're smiling. They find it easy to interact with one another. They have energy. They're passing their classes without, it seems like as much effort as I'm passing to just get by. And that led to increased feelings of shame, increased feelings of worthlessness, and then it just continued to spiral. Yeah. Uh, so up until my senior year, I had been flirting with the idea of ending my life. Uh, it, it wasn't anything that was concrete uh, up until the summer of my senior year. When I, in my head, I was just like, I've had enough. And I spent uh, most of uh, that summer planning what I was going to wind up doing. And when I had my plan, I was just going to wait for the moment that, you know, the sign that, right, right. that I, I definitely was not worth the life that I was living, yeah. um, that, that other people would be better off without me. And I was, I just, I was waiting for that sign. Yeah. So let me, let me go back a little bit. When you first started having these feelings, now that you know that now that you recognize at any point in time, did you feel that these were feelings brought on because knowing that you grew up in a very loving family, middle class, you didn't really need anything. Was this ultimately you were not getting approval in areas of your life or love in areas of your life or acceptance from your parents because everything was going just what we would consider great? No, it's, it's a great question. And one that it's one I've considered a, a great deal of trying to go back into like, why did my depression start? Why did these things go around? And why did I have such a hard time really articulating what was going on? I just didn't know what I didn't know. Really, it was, no, I, I didn't lack for approval. I didn't lack for accolades and, and praise from friends, um, whether that be, you know, formal with, you know, school awards or jujitsu student of the year kind of things, or because I never left the gym. And you know, I, I knew my parents loved me. I knew they cared about me. I knew my sister was proud of me. I was proud of them and the work that we were doing. We were in a family business of youth lacrosse together. So we were very tight knit in that. And I had a lot going for me. And it was a lot of less, I would say, on the fact of like, oh, I, I'm missing some amount of approval or I don't have this person's deep appreciation or I don't really perceive that to be the case. And that's reflecting in my thoughts. The closest thing I could get looking back on it now would be the, the same thing I'm seeing in a lot of young people today is this constant juggling of freaking balls in the air and this overwhelming and skewed sense of expectation from other people and the inability to ever reasonably live up to that. Wow. And looking back on that, and that, that was certainly a driver. And because I had this outsized expectation that I thought others had for me in all avenues of my life, then that certainly is, it, it's very, it becomes very easy to say, I'm not worth X, Y, and Z. And then that turns into, I am worth less and I'm a burden and I just need to, to end this. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's funny that you say that, you know, in the terms of, it's almost like you weren't doing enough in terms of like you were getting the accolades, you were getting the trophies, you were getting the pats on the back, you were getting the, the thumbs up, the good job. But it almost seemed like it becomes an addiction, so to say, 
to get those things for self or for, for approval because nothing seems to be good enough for those people. Yeah, it's it's and it's not it's not that nothing was good enough for them. I, again, this is coming into one of the biggest things for depressives, also those with bipolar, but anybody with it's called distorted thinking in the literature. That's the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy of just like your thoughts get skewed. Yeah. The lens gets really messed up. Right. So any anything, any approval that got sent my way, yes, I filtered that as this, you know, okay, you did this, but you could have done better at this. Right, right, then, right, right, right. Then that got even worse inside of my head where no matter how well, like for the sporting example, no matter how well the team did, if I made a singular mistake, big, small, whatever in a game, uh, I, I was done for the rest of the day, yeah. almost the rest of the week. So let me ask you this. Does this, because this is new to me, okay? And we may have some listeners out there that either are dealing with this, have dealt with it, know somebody, or maybe even it come across them. How does this happen? Does this, a word that somebody has said something like, oh, you should have done better, or is this a repeated behavior, or is this just the way we accept something in our own mind and then we're just playing that over and over and over again to where we are talking ourselves into, you should have done better. You should have done this. You should have done that. How does it happen? I it, Certainly in my case, it was the subtlety of it is where the, the initial power for these particular, uh, certainly diagnoses of mental illness can be. I think Personally, in, in my own sense, many people won't agree with me, but I think we're all a little mentally ill in our own way, depending right. on where you go. We exist on a spectrum of behaviors. Right, so that, of that's fair. So the thing for me looking at it is I have a predisposition to depression and anxiety and a little bit of bipolar disorder in my family along my mother's line of the family. Um, so mother, severe depression, grandfather, severe depression. I had a great aunt who was at the time put in an asylum because that's what you did with quote unquote crazy people who yeah. cope with things out of sight, out of mind. And so I've got that just baked into my genes, right? So that's the genetic role of the dice I, I got to deal with. And I had a predilection for probably more negative internal self-talk than the average individual, right? That's a fair way of putting it. So now any tiny little thing that can add on, can pile onto that, just greatly reinforces that. And it starts small, but it's an exponential curve. It is one of those things where no matter how much my parents told me they loved me or they were proud of me or that this was an amazing thing that I did or, oh, wow, this is so cool. Great job, Gordon. It eventually got to a point where none of that mattered. My own internal self-talk, the story that I grew into, it's not something that is just you wake up one day and this is horrible thoughts. It's This is a slow, insidious process uh, which is one of the big issues that I see, um, certainly when I'm speaking to young people, because they, they're still trying to figure out, they're navigating all the other things in life that are difficult in this crazy season of life that they're in, middle school, high school, into college. And, oh, yeah, let's just throw onto the mix for those who also have a diagnosable mental illness. Yeah. It's a lot. Wow. So you're at the end of high school. You're having these thoughts. You know, you really don't know what's going on in your mind, but you know, you're starting to plan things out. What happens from there? So I I had a plan and the specifics of it, I'm not going to get deep into. Those are less important, but the the long and short of it is I was going to find a, I found a way that I was probably going to be able to wreck my car. 
that was the, the bit. And, and the reason behind that is, again, it was my pain hadn't gotten to such a point where I was going to, I didn't want to burden my parents with, with the thought of that their son died by suicide. It was going to be a 18 year old driver takes a turn too fast on a wet road, rainy conditions. He's not wearing a seatbelt. This is a story that has been told hundreds of times over. Yeah. That's easy to accept and figure out. Right. So that was going to be the idea. And I was just waiting for a moment. That's just like a definitive sign to me that I, I clearly couldn't, cope with life and that this, this was not going to work for me. And that thing I only had control over was how I was going to check out of this world. And that happened on the lacrosse field of practice. I've, I've been profiled in a, in a story in lacrosse magazine about this. And I've spoken to my old high school about this quite, quite a good bit. And my, my buddy Ben just absolutely dusts me on a left to right dodge. I was a defenseman and like broke my ankles. It was one of the worst beatings in a dodge I've ever gotten. And I'm just, I, I, I slammed my helmet in the dirt and I was furious. That's just not how I play. This is, oh man. And then that just snowballed into, ah, clearly you can't even play this sport that you're halfway decent at, at the level that you want to. That was the sign for me. And I wound up uh, after practice going down to the parking lot and I just sat on the edge of my, my Jeep Cherokee, just kind of looking out into nothing really you know, they call it a thousand yard stare or whatever, yeah. a little bit of shell shock, however you want to call it. And I was going to wait for the whole parking lot to empty. And then I was going to take myself to that spot that I had picked out and I was going to make this happen. And it wound up that the same guy who beat me on that Dodge, Ben kind of sees me and comes on over and just, just asks, he's like, Hey Gordon, what's up? And I don't remember ever saying anything. I don't even, I barely even remember him asking me how I was doing uh, just because I was so locked in with tunnel vision of what I was about to do. Uh, and then he vibed off of that. And instead of being like, well, okay, dude, see you later. He asked me, how can I help? And I, I broke down just in the freaking parking lot, just him and me alone. And, and he got me stable enough um, over the next intervening hours that I felt comfortable enough going home. And then he and I went to my first therapy session together with the school counselor. He actually got like walked me in. Wow. It's a godsend, man. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things. And now it's he's one of my closest friends. He and his wife live downtown. He teaches at the high school that he and I used to go to. Uh, we check in regularly. And and now the thing I'm quite grateful for now is is I am a person that he can call for because uh, he's the dean of, of a senior class at a, at a high school downtown. And when some of his students are struggling with things and he's not entirely sure how to approach that, he'll kind of run some, some stuff by me and, and I can at least point him in a better direction to give good advice to their parents um, as far as what, what could be a useful treatment thing. Wow. Because a lot of folks, when you're in that world, is like the last thing you want to be is like, oh, we need treatment for mental illness because, you know, Becky also has to get on the swim team and, and also has to worry about her debate team stuff and, and her history AP project stuff. It's it's a lot. So I try to come in with a, a very much a just pure, like, what's the health of this kid bit? And it's been a nice full circle trip between uh, him and I and our relationship. Good deal. Good deal. So after that happened, you start seeing therapists, you know, at the school and things like that. Then how long does that last for what happens from there? At the high school, not long, because that was maybe April, maybe March of 2006 when I graduated. Okay. So like a month and a half later, I'm done. And, and then like I was like kind of I thought I was past. It. I'm like, oh, I can get on to college and, and nobody knows me out here. I can make my own persona and let's go do this thing. And 
I didn't forget about the thoughts, but as far as like, I was like, oh, that's, that's just, that was like youthful in, in whatever. And I go into college and now I'm in a new place, a new city, a whole bunch of new people, new <laughs> classes that are harder and uh, 6 a.m. morning lifts with a lacrosse team practice. So it's like I piled on so much more stuff than my psyche at the time could handle looking back on it. And I lasted maybe five months of my fall semester before when I had a conversation with my mom. She could read something was up. And she drove up uh, the next morning, took me to the ER. And the doctor there was like, yeah, you're depressed. Here's some Paxil, the drug that they had at the time for, for it. And that was my, my first introduction to antidepressants. And he was very clear. He was like, whatever you do, just don't go off of these cold turkey. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. And I freaking didn't listen to that. Once I started feeling better, I would go off them. And then that just started this kind of really brutal cycle from 19 until 26, 27 of going on antidepressants, several different cocktails of antidepressants of, of various types and going to different therapies and different therapeutic modalities and then cold turkeying that saying, screw you to my therapist and trying it on my own. And, and that would just spiral me back down again. And then I'd land right back at thinking about suicide again. Were there new things arising um, within the depression, within the thoughts of everything, or was it still the same cycle of what you're doing is not good enough? You're letting people down. You're averting to people. Was anything it, new popping up? It did. I mean, over time, you know, my depression matured as I did. I, I like to think it's it's one of those things. Before it's just kind of like bad thoughts of that you're worthless. Then it starts. Uh, at least in my case, it became. It sapped so much of my energy. I actively tried to not speak over the course of my day. The less I actually had to verbalize anything, the more energy I had to deal with the BS that was going on in between my ears. And any external socialization just took that away. And that made me more susceptible to these thoughts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's longer and longer times in bed, this feeling of just deep heaviness, like an elephant's foot just pressing on my chest all freaking night. And then this, this eventually that turned into a postural thing. So um, you'll, uh, a lot of folks will, if, if they have folks with, have a, someone who has depression or in a severe depression, you see this with folks certainly in hospitalizations as well, um, but they, they develop a very crunched over posture. Yeah. Um, and that's, a, that's an evolutionary byproduct of trying to cover up your internal organs because you feel so weak and helpless. Wow. So the idea is I'm going to protect all the squishy little bits of me here and, and curl my head in and become submissive in this state. And unfortunately for our psychology, that, that body also has feedback into the brain. So the more you do that, the more you're feeling worse. And then that just kind of continues to compound over time. Uh, the worst thing for me, though, for it was, was overall just the endless lethargy that accompanied depression that I felt incredibly judged for, not only for myself, because I was like, you should be able to get out of bed. You, Nothing is wrong with you. That was the thing inside of my head. Of going, yeah. Even though I knew I had depression, I was still very much rebelling against the thing. And it took probably 10 years of rebelling before I was like, maybe I got to work with this instead of against it, because the against it thing isn't, isn't flying. Yeah, absolutely. What did you do? We may be fast forwarding here. And if we are that, you know, we can backtrack. But what did you do to start getting out of this, to start making lead way to change your mindset, to start conquering 
the way you were thinking that led to all this depression? So I've got to credit my, my first, my, my longest term up until a couple of years ago, therapist uh, Tracy who's going to practice uh, here in Georgia. And so she was, I think I saw her for maybe five years, just at the tail end of high school and, and through most of my college years. She introduced me to cognitive behavioral therapy, which yeah. is the gold standard of therapies across a lot of different things. And it's still the thing that I do the most of still in my day to day. But getting introduced to that was it wasn't so much that. I, so there was no way that I was going to crawl out of this hole alone. Right. Uh, so I, I had to offload some of that onto my therapist. And, and so she introduced me to this model of let's let's just recognize the thoughts coming into your brain. Let's try yeah. to step away from these being you and just see like what you they're, like they're projections on a movie screen and you're just got to try to identify what the scene is. Yeah. And so a lot of that was that's that's a, the big foundation of, of, of CBT, as it's called, cognitive behavioral therapy of an awareness of the thoughts that are coming. in, And it's hard to do at first. It's one of the reasons why they recommend writing these things down. So every morning and every evening, my, my homework was to write down at least three thoughts that I was having I could recognize categorize that thought according to the CBT distortions list. There's like 10 to 16 of them, depending on what you look at. And then after identifying and then categorizing them, you write down logical challenges, rational challenges, because these thoughts are completely irrational. So stuff that's based in reality that you can point to as evidence against those thoughts. So they're counter thoughts. And it's not what people think of as replacing a bad thought with a happy thought or a sad thought with a positive thought. Not the case. It doesn't work. Um, our brains skew to the negative naturally, so yeah. it, it just it, they cancel out. So instead is, is you overwhelm that emotional thought with logical, rational evidence. And so, for example, this would be this was how I started climbing out of this hole, little by little, was a, a fairly common thought uh, was, I'm worthless. I've already said that a few times here, so I'm yeah. worthless. Three words, right? I'm worthless. So what is, what is that thought? Well, that's that that could fit into a category of magnification. So I'm 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 super focused in on this thing. That's all I see, uh, and it's also a category of, of my favorite one is emotional reasoning, uh, which is I think this is true, therefore it is true. Right. Which is one of the worst lessons. I think everybody has to go through that. That is not an accurate statement. Yeah. And. I try to teach younger people to recognize that earlier because uh, I wish I had learned it sooner. Um, so the idea here is like target is emotional reason. Got it. Uh, what are the logical challenges to I'm worthless? Okay, fine. You're a B student in college. That's clearly you're, you're doing something right on that front. You are, you are successful in your classes that you're, you're going to take. Your, your friends enjoy hanging out with you, give you positive affirmation. So clearly they enjoy your time. Uh, you have regular conversations with mom, dad, my sister, Caitlin. So then that that's showing that all these things are coming on of, of just like, oh, hell, you managed to he help out because I'm a pretty good writer. Oh, you managed to help that guy out with his history paper or something like that. That showed that you were able to contribute in some way. Over time, that's not a, a singular event, but over time and with all the different thoughts you're doing, you build up such a body of evidence yeah. that it, it completely crushes that emotional tendency to go to that negative place. Mm. And I, I, for years, I wrote these down. I had reams of paper of notebook paper where I just had columns of what these thoughts were. 
And now I've, I've done it for so long. I do that in my head almost on the fly. Like I recognize a thought coming in. I'm like, I don't like that. What kind of thought is this? What are some challenges? Okay, moving on. But I've been doing that for about 10 years, 15 years. So uh, I've got practice with it. It's automatic. But that's how I got started getting out of this and where I got really curious about why my mind thinks the way it does. And I started getting less adversarial with my depression in my brain and more curious about just why is it that I think the way I think? And that led me into a lot more research and a lot more fulfillment personally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a there's a little phrase that I, I I say I coined it. I don't know if I did or not. I don't know if I heard it somewhere, but something I've, I've said before in the past is, you know, what we want in our mind, we have to feed our mind with. We have to feed our mind for it to grow, right? Okay. Things will still grow if we put manure on it. <laughs> okay. What do you want to grow though? All right. We've always heard Grass is greener on the other side, depending on where you come from. The Marine Corps says, yeah, because of all the bloodshed. You know, life itself will say, yeah, because of all the manure used to help fertilize. And we could also say life is what we make of it, right? But ultimately, we have to feed our mind in the direction that we truly want it to grow. If we want positivity, then I don't recommend, personally, to watch CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, When you first wake up in the morning, okay, I honestly don't even know as the last time I even watched the news, okay? However, I will use the news little thing on on Facebook, and I'll scroll through, and I'll just read the headlines. And if it's interesting, you know, like, oh, so-and-so was murdered, da-da-da-da-da, I'll, like, kind of click on and be like, oh, okay, this is what happened. Or, you know, COVID-19 this, I'm like, uh, not even paying attention to it. I don't want the negative Afghanistan. I don't want the, you know, but for me, I know for me, this is something that I used to do is when I would, and I didn't realize I was doing this for a while. When I would go to work, I am a life path number four, if you understand numerology, and this is something that I just learned, but basically the way my brain thinks is I'm, I can come across cynical and negative, but it's because I see the whole picture. So we walk outside and you're like, oh man, it's a beautiful day because there's a couple white clouds over here and there's no clouds over here. And then way off yonder, I see this small little black cloud. I'm like, yeah, it's a beautiful day, but you got to watch that cloud over there. And you're like, Joe, I didn't need to know about the black cloud. Who cares about the black cloud? There's nothing above us. And you're right for your way of thinking, but I'm also right for my way of thinking. And it's not that I'm being negative. It's that I see the black cloud. I see no clouds. And then I see white clouds. And I know the white clouds can eventually turn into black clouds, but I also know the black cloud can move away and it's a clear blue sky. But I can also know they can all come together and have a a, a storm. Okay. So all those things start going through my mind. So... When it comes to certain things is, I know for me, it's like when, and, and this is something when I spent six years in the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps is very adamant about, used to be very adamant about how we wore our dress uniforms and the amount of time that we would spend building our wall lockers and folding our shirts. Shirts had to be a six inches by six inches and you had to have a flat crease. So literally you would iron you would fold your shirt a certain way, even your even your underwear. And underwear was three by three. You you iron the edges so it would be a perfect three inches. 
okay, or a perfect six, six inches, you know. And I remember making a comment one day. I said, I asked somebody. I says, "A marine and dress blue uniforms, okay." Everybody knows, especially females, <laughs> knows what a marine and dress blue uniform looks like because we break necks. We're that sharp looking. And I'm not talking about any of the other branches of the services. I'm not taking away from anything from them, okay? But you you put us at a, on a color guard on a professional field or something like that. People are going to say, wow, they look sharp. Wow, they look hot, okay? And it just clicked in my mind one day. I'm like, why in the world do we look so good in that uniform? And it's not because we hang the uniform up and we start looking at how great it looks. Oh, my medal looks good. My ribbons look good. Oh, the blood stripe down the side looks good. Oh, my hat, my cover looks good. No, we look at it and figure out everything that's wrong with it and then we fix it. And that's ultimately what my brain was. Is I look at everything wrong and I fix it. Okay, so I would go into work because I own my own business. And the moment I walk in and be like, hey, there's trash in the parking lot. Somebody needs to pick that up. The water hose isn't wrapped up. Dog bowls are out. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. And to my staff, I was just doing nothing but coming in with negativity. Which can definitely be portrayed that way, you know. And what I had to start doing is I had to start feeding my mind different. So what I would do is... I would drive to work. My house to work was only like three miles, okay? And I would put certain music on, okay? Whatever just soothed my soul at that moment, okay? And I would play and I'd rock it. I mean, I'm telling about like when I stopped at a stop sign or pulled up in the parking lot, it was rocking. You can hear it from the outside. And I would I would not get out of the car. I would sit there in the parking lot for however long it took until I was mentally ready to walk in so I wasn't coming across in a negative manner. I had to feed my mind differently. I didn't know what was causing it. I had no idea. I'm just like, I don't like the play. Th- I don't like the way the place looks. Well, you it's know? your natural, like, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that it's your natural bent to it. And you come up with the, with already a, a beautiful visual of sky clouds and, and using that for, and, and there's a lot going into, especially when I started learning about meditation, the, the idea here is no matter what clouds and I work in the electrical utility industry. So I work when it's fricking storming out yeah. and the lights are <laughs> off and we gotta, we gotta go put the fricking lights back on because people need power. But it's like, but the day before it was, it was sunny and not a cloud in sight. So what's the constant there? It's, it's the idea with meditation uh, in some ways that has been explained to me is that the mind itself is the blue sky. It yeah. is always the blue sky. Right. The thoughts that come in, the good thoughts, those nice little white clouds look pretty and, oh, that's a bunny and that's an elephant. Okay, cool. And the bad clouds are the negative ones, the big dark ones. You're like, I got to really watch out for that kind of thing. And they over, they generally, because there could be a threat there, you're like, I got to pay attention to that. Yeah. And and people should know about this. Right. And it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, that emphasis on, it makes people, and it's one of those things where I, I joke with folks, I'm just like, I'm depression has allowed me to become very good at thinking deeply because I spent so many years just thinking deeply about truly awful thoughts. So the, the wow. challenge for me as I got older was, can I, can I do this thing that I've naturally been trained by my brain and my behaviors to do? Can I switch that over to this direction? Yeah. Something and just, positive and think about the same. I always say, imagine the amount of energy, time, 
and, you know, whatever else that you think of something negative, how much more you could be productive if you put forth the same effort into thinking towards something positive. It's, it's remarkable. And it's one of the things that it's difficult in an ill mind. Like, so it's, it's, I would have these conversations and that almost the exact wording that you use would be used by a group therapist when I'd be in the hospital and everybody rolls their eyes like, dude, screw you. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Life is, life is not freaking sunshine and rainbows. It's brutal. It's bleak and it's horrifying. And we recognize this, but we're the crazy people in the freaking hospital. Right. So when folks are in that state, which is why I try to be very non-judgmental with folks who are either in a crisis or told me that I was like, hey, I'm having these types of thoughts that are scaring me. It's like, all right, well, let's let's try to explore kind of like a little bit what's going on and why. And I always come back to the big thing that I've learned with evolutionary psychology, because it does answer a lot of pressing questions in a very good way of just saying, we always, and I, I like doing this with sports uh, players and coaches, by virtue of us being here right now in 2021, we are here because our ancestors were victorious. They won the survival game. They passed on their genes. They had new progeny, that, and that just kept on happening. But go back far enough, and when life was tooth and nail, and we didn't have to worry about our bodily safety all the time, it was beneficial for our ancestors to always be on the lookout for stuff that could go wrong right. badly because the, the cutting edge was life and death at that point. Yeah. Now it's like you miss an email or you got 50 in your inbox and that freaks you out. That same stress response is what happened when, you know, a saber tooth tiger jumped in front of your ancestor, however many millions of years ago, and they had to deal with that because they were looking freaking around. And now we have the same system but we have different stressors and the system was not designed for ongoing stress. Right. There's a great book called why zebras don't get ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. And he talks about the fact, just like animals don't have stress. Yeah. They don't Prey animals. They, they look around they're like nothing's there. Okay. We go back to Eden. Oh crap. Something's there. I got to run away. And either they run and they get caught and they're dinner and they don't have any more problems because they're dead or They've run away and now the threat is gone. So now they just go back to eating, grooming, whatever. And we're, as far as we can tell, the only species that can tell all the horrible things that could happen to us in the future and ruminate on that. And that gets in the way of doing the productive things we want. to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if this goes into NLP or CBT, you know, but, you know, when it's come to when it comes to visualization, You know, and they talk about the percentage of like, especially like with athletes, if um, and I don't know if you remember John Ritter came out with this. You may have been too young, but they called it a series where there's a will, there's an A. And it was a instructional series on teaching kids how to concentrate in school. And this is back in the I want to say the 80s. Uh, And they talked about visualization then, and they talked about the amount of people, if you had three groups of five people, and the first group did absolutely nothing, they're basketball players, and they just sat on the bench, they didn't do nothing. Then you had the second group that visualized making a free throw. And then the third group actually physically made the three throw, the free throw. And the percentage, I can't remember what it was, but... The percentage is pretty much almost the same 
for those that visualized it versus those that did it. Because the brain doesn't know the difference between the visualization and the actual doing of it because it's the same chemical response. If I visualize myself hitting a home run and I go through the whole emotions of, okay, I'm watching the pitcher. He's winding up. I'm in my, I'm digging my feet into the dirt. My hands are gripping. I swing the baseball bat. I hear the, I feel the crack. I feel the hit of the baseball. I hear the sound of the crack of the bat. I'm watching it go over as I'm trotting to first base, you know. My brain, the chemicals in my brain don't know the difference of me actually doing the same exact thing, of it actually happening because of the power of visualization, you know? And so when we feed our minds, if you think about like what you were saying is, man, it's a dark and gloomy day and I've got, a pot, I've got, a tr- I've got to, uh, to climb, you know, or get in the ladder truck or whatever the case is, the bucket, you know, or climb this, you know, tree or, or whatever the case is, you know, we can sit there and think on a, on a day that has white clouds, all the white clouds mean all this great stuff and the black clouds mean all this great, all this bad stuff. But yet we can sit there and we can ultimately say, hey, no, the black clouds mean, hey, man, we're going to get more rain for crops. It's going to cool down the hot temperatures. It's going to provide this. It's going to provide this. It's going to help. We can sit there and train ourselves ultimately that the same negative thoughts that we're having that are controlling our life can truly be positive thoughts. Well, it's, it's a while. So this is so I'm reading the happiness advantage right now, and, and I've dug into so one of the things that I'll, I'll tell young people when I'm, when I'm speaking to them is there, there is a happiness and positivity trap, I think, in Western culture, certainly American culture, my experience, where, and this is one of the things, this is one of the things I'll fault my parents for. It's not something that I blame them for. They didn't right. know any better, but it is something where my parents started is just like, oh, you should, you, you should pursue what makes you happy. The, the, your goal is just like, do the things that make you happy. And, but I never felt happy at all. So like that was a losing battle to begin with, with depression. So that was a, that was a fail, but I say they never taught me how to be content. Mm. That is a vastly different thing. And it's one of those things where the the older I get, certainly the more I, I prioritize my contentedness, no matter what the situation may be. Yeah. But the, the anecdote or the research anyway, from the happiness advantage is they studied people who won the lottery, a substantial sum, and they studied people who became quadriplegics. And they asked them, like, what their general, like, happiness levels were, their mindsets were prior to this event, that either they won a shit ton of money or they lost the full use of their body, pretty much. And the prediction that the scientists would be like, generally, this is a good thing that happened to somebody they're, they're, they're probably going to be up here mentally and the folks over here are probably going to be, you know, who are quadriplegics now, probably down here. They found no statistical difference between the two in terms of mindset. Wow. Nothing changed. After about six months, the folks who won the lottery were back at the baseline that they were mentally. The folks who had lost all the use of their limbs were back at the baseline. So it's the ability for the human mind to adapt to the situation, Yeah, the externals going on. It's just one of those things of, and it's, I think it's Robert Frost. who was like, I can sum up life in three words. It goes on. It's yeah. just that. Can, can you appreciate the transitory nature of what this is? When I was younger, I couldn't, I was like, right. and then I was always setting these insane goalposts. And like, if I get to them, great. 
And then there's only another goalpost after that. And if I don't get to them, that's just another sign that I'm terrible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now it's, I, I have much, I would say more modest goals, but I, I, I framed how I live my day to day in a yeah. much certainly contentful, purposefully contentful mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, I love what you said. You didn't say life, you said day. You know, and I think sometimes, especially when we're going through things, we try to think big when we really need to be thinking small. And I don't mean small to discredit that. I mean, like, I know for me, when my wife, when my dad passed away, and then 22 days later, my wife passed away, I didn't think and believe that I had depression until later on. But yet there were times I didn't want to get out of bed. There were times I just wanted to do nothing. And I had a friend of mine, my, one of my business mentors, he's like, Joseph, you've got to create a routine. You've got to create a routine. You've got to create a routine. You know, he's like, just get in here over to work. I didn't want to think about my business. I didn't want to think about anything else. Okay. I just, my heart was broken. I, my, my life had been shattered, you know, and I'm, I'm now all of a sudden a single parent with three kids. One of them happened to be a one-year-old. And I'm like, what the heck do I do? I've got, I've got a 10 year old that I've, I've been fathering for 10 years and it's like, I don't even know what to do right now. So thinking about my life goals, my one, my three, my five, my 10 year goals was not even on the radar. I needed to learn how to figure out the goal of just simply getting from where I was laying in bed to somewhere different. And a lot of people that is different. For me, if I wanted to go to from the bedroom to the living room, well, first thing I got to do is sit up in bed. Second thing I got to do is put my feet on the floor. Third thing I got to do is stand up. Fourth thing I got to do is start moving, you know, but I had to break those things down so much because I had no desire to, if I'm like, Oh man, I got to go to work. I'm like, Oh, you know what? I don't feel like going to work, man. You know, work will take care of itself. There'll be tomorrow. I was thinking too big at that moment because everything, when you're depressed, a lot of people don't realize they're depressed until either somebody, until I wouldn't say the light bulb goes off in their head, but pretty much the light bulb goes off in their head because the, the actions of depression become an everyday pattern. And it becomes the new you, just like the quadriplegic. Now I don't have use of my limbs. So I eventually have to accept the fact that I now have to do this way. You know, it becomes the new you. It becomes a new reality. And so for me, I knew I didn't want to stay in bed all the time because I had three kids. I had to definitely take care of them. But I'm like, I also didn't want to get out of bed. And part of me is like, Man, you know, I know the baby's going to be waking up anytime. You know what? He's going to learn what it is to sleep in because I'm not going to go pick him up. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm training him how to sleep longer. You know, in my mind, it it's, worked. <laughs> and it's so easy to, and, and here's the thing. Like some folks are just like, oh, you know, that, that's, you know, that's clearly you're rationalizing some behavior that you want to continue that isn't healthy or good for your family. It's like, yeah, that's what rationalization is. And we all, we do all it. do it. Yes, it's, it's 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 one of the single most common things that people do that we don't want to admit we do. And another and, word for rationalizing is called excuses. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. But I, I, again, one of the other things that I get is is the 
and this is this is where I I think I've softened a lot for myself personally is and again this is why I, I call what I do mental agility as an as an answer to in complement to mental toughness. We'll talk a little bit more about the differences there. Yeah. Uh, the thing here is because I will still have mornings um, where yeah I I wake up and some t- like my depression gets a vote even if I'm doing everything right it gets a vote. Right. And sometimes it smacks me in the face and I'm like, great, now I got to deal with this. Yeah. And if it's on a day when I don't have to work, okay, fine, I'll, I'll slow it down a little bit. Um, but there have been days where I, I haven't been, and I've gotten better at this, not judging myself for not being at 100% every freaking day. Right. So it's like, yeah, yesterday was great. I don't know how I'm going to feel tomorrow. I got to deal with how I'm feeling now. Right now, all I have is 72%. That's all I have. So I've got to scale back what I've got yeah. and give, I can give a hundred percent of 72. Right. But I, when I was younger, I, I was just like, no, I always have to be at this level yeah. at all times. Yeah. Yeah. And that is an impossible way of living. And, 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 and I'm glad that you said that because to our listeners, besides what you just said, that could be one of them, but what would be some action steps that if they find themselves in the same situation you are, maybe they don't, maybe they're not clinically depressed. Maybe they don't have their, they haven't been diagnosed, but we all have a degree, regardless of how much it may be, of mental health issues. Depression, anxiety, stress, fear, I mean, it's all dealing with the health of our mental capacity. You just mentioned one about understanding that you're not going to always be your best. You're not going to always wake up and be 110% every single day. But what would be some action steps that help people continue to move forward in the midst of what they're going through? So when somebody asks me like, hey, or and typically this is, this is younger people <laughs> noticing this because they always feel like they got to be doing things. Uh, but the, the first question I ask when they're like, I, I feel overwhelmed. I don't have any energy. Uh, my thoughts are scattered all over the place. I can't really focus on what I want to focus on. Things are slipping, right? Things that people can appreciate and understand because that's not a mental illness or anything. That's just life, right? That yeah. stuff just happens. Uh, and I, the first question I always ask is, how are you sleeping? Because that is, so when you go to the hospital, they have bed checks, 15 yeah. minutes, 30 minutes as you go through that progress. And they're trying to see like, are you actually sleeping? Or are you just kind of like up shuffling around doing stuff? Or are you okay? Um, but one of the biggest things is, uh, yeah, they, they hand out sleeping pills like hotcakes in the hospital because if you are if you don't sleep well, you're screwed long-term. It, right. it doesn't, nobody operates well off of a lack of sleep. And he, not even Jocko Willink, that man is the reason I take cat naps during my working day with my boots off and my feet raised because if a Navy SEAL can do it to improve his efficacy on missions, I certainly can do that in my day-to-day job. So I asked them, how, how are you sleeping? Well, what do you do before bed? They're like, yeah, I'm on the phone or I'm on my computer or I'm watching videos or, okay, I'm not going to say stop all that. All I say, this is, this is the action step for you that is environmental. So it doesn't require anything other than going and purchasing a $2 red lamp red light, put it in your, in your lamp. The reason being for this one, again, I love my evolutionary psychology, but even this, before the light bulb, before even fire, we went to sleep when the sun went down because that's all we could do. Right. Right. 
So we can, we can appreciate that and utilize that as leverage to getting us better sleep. Whether you're watching a video or on your phone scrolling or whatnot, in my case, I read or I listen to an audio book, but I've got a red lamp at a soft setting in my bedroom. That's the only light. And what that does is that tricks my brain to thinking I'm watching a sunset. And so all it starts doing is releasing melatonin and saying, it's time to go to sleep now. And that's because for eons, our ancestors went to sleep at the setting sun and then went to sleep over a fire. And those deep reds and oranges are so comforting to our psyche that it's easier to fall asleep. And so I'm like, if you could just change that tiny bit of your environment, go out, go buy, go buy the lamp. It's $2, put it in, screw it in. And just try that for a week and see how much easier it is to fall asleep. Now, if we can have you falling asleep more easily, now we can start getting all these peripheral stuff out that you need to. So like I am very, my sleep hygiene, I like to think is is generally pretty darn good because my goal is to stack the cards in my deck in my favor for the next day. Yeah. And so I'm I'm prepping my day at nine o'clock at night because I have I'm, I've already got, I've gotten sick and tired of waking up feeling freaking miserable because I have a predilection for that. So I say, okay, what are all the environmental ways I can possibly do so I can fall asleep more easily so I can wake up more likely to be in a better mood? Doesn't guarantee it. <laughs> it's, you know, last week I had one pretty bad morning. I'm like, oh, great. We got to grit this one out. Um, but it certainly makes it easier to be like, oh, you know, it's, it's I can deal with one bad day a week. And I've worked to get to that point, you know, sometimes one bad day every three weeks and I'm happy about that, but I've, I've had to put in the, that work in terms of my behaviors, my actions and my environment to make it more likely that I can do that. And then it's like, if I only have one bad day, okay, I can get through that. I can manage my track record for bad days is pretty good so far. So I can get through that, but it's when I start compounding that things unravel, but that would be my, my first one is like an honest assessment of how you are sleeping. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's good stuff. Never, I've thought about that because, and I've never really thought about that until I started having some anxiety issues. Uh, the fight or flight syndrome I would get a couple months after my wife passed away. I'd start getting them in the, like, I'd be in Walmart. I could be in the middle of nowhere. I could be driving my car. I, I like nothing was a specific trigger. You know, like some people's like, I can't be in crowded areas or I need music playing or Mine would be at any time, anywhere, any place. It didn't matter, you know, but it was being affected all by my sleep. And when I started getting to sleep, then I started, you know, my body was resting more. My body wasn't trying to fight itself, you know, so I'm glad that you said that. So listeners, I just want to encourage you guys, you know, this is, this is a gentleman right here that has from a very young age, okay? And this is, you know, high school is still a developmental age. You know, it's still a huge developmental age because we're, we're, we're finding new love. We're hanging out with people. We're really understanding the judgment of others, trying to fit in the crowd, peer pressure, things like that, you know? And this is a guy that's come a very long ways in his life, but now he's also, it's not so much about, conquering things it's learning how to conquer things you know and learning how to be able to overcome that when something does rise up because we can't help or control the thoughts that enter our mind okay we can't however we can control the response that we have 
And that's ultimately learning how to conquer when we're suffering with something or or because listen, there's times that I had that like an anniversary of my, you know, my wife's death or something like that, or my dad's birthday is coming up. You know, I can't, I can't help to think a certain way, but I can help how I act that day or how I respond and I can conquer my actions and what I want to do. But you're listening to a man that's learned how to overcome you know, the stress, the anxiety, the, the resentment, the, the feeling of worthlessness, you know, and that can go in so many different directions in so many areas of his life. And he has learned how to take his thoughts, his feelings, and turn them into something that's going to be positive for him. So I just encourage you to reach out to Gordon and, you know, listen to what he's saying reach out to him, email him, and we'll give you his email here in a little bit or a good way to contact him. Because just the things that he's saying, even about sleep, this is the simplicity of being able to overcome battles and issues that you're 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 facing right now. You know, uh, learning and understanding the mindset, learning and understanding sleep patterns and things like that, you know, and then how to go how to go throughout your day. Gordon, what is the best way to, for people to be able to reach out to you? Certainly. So anybody can go to my website. It's mentallyagile.com. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can search mental agility or mentally agile and and my name. I'll pop right up. Uh, My email address is gcorsetti at mentallyagile.com. I also have a contact form if people want to put in for either virtual coaching sessions, presentations, uh, or in-person coaching and, and, uh, and presentations, depending on what state or local guidelines are doing as, as we're going through some, fresh COVID stuff. Um, but yeah, so uh, I'm, uh, I write pretty much every week on my blog, typically twice a week. And it's usually some type of insight or discussion into what is uh, a cognitive behavioral therapy technique or just some overall thoughts on evolutionary psychology uh, or kind of how I overcame my, my problems taking medication for possibly yeah. my entire life. Uh, so I try to keep that pretty dang fresh, and I'm my, my big thing is that I'm always using myself as a bit of a guinea pig to just be like, all right, what's working, what's not, and reporting on the stuff that that does work for me. And my hope is that that some folks out there can find one or two things that they find very actionable, and they can try out, and, and if they find some benefit from that, then that that is at least one small stepping stone into making some better behavioral choices for their long-term health, uh, but also a, a, a much more fulfilled life at the end of the day. Absolutely, man. That's good stuff, man. One question for you, I'm putting you on the spot. What does the phrase or the name of our podcast purpose through pain mean to you? Purpose through pain. What does that mean to me? The biggest one is that pain teaches if you're willing to be a student. It can be blinding. It can be overwhelming. It can be debilitating. All of these things are true. But the the thing that is true about all pain is that it does cease. It does diminish. And in those spaces, there is room for changes, room for trying to see how you can either live with it if it's something chronic or to make adjustments if it's something that you're just constantly running into. So I would say that pain is is a teacher if an individual is willing to be taught in that space, willing to be a student, willing to be curious about just what the heck's going on and why. Wow, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Guys, 
go check out Gordon's stuff. Sign up for his virtual, his 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 coaching, his one on one coaching. I know that it'll help just hearing his testimony here and hearing him talk. Um, I always like to say, man, if it can help me, people like me or people like him, it can help you guys. We're no different than any of y'all. But go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. Go to his page, uh, email him, fill out his contact form, reach out to him any way that you can, and don't forget to share. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Through Pain podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share with a friend and leave a five-star review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcast host so you won't miss a single episode. You're one step closer to finding true freedom and breakthrough.